0: Welcome to Financial Modeler's Corner, where we discuss the art and science of financial modeling with your host, Paul Barnhurst. Financial Modeler's Corner is sponsored by Financial Modeling Institute. Welcome to Financial Modeler's Corner. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst. This is a brand new podcast where we will talk all about the art and science of financial modeling with distinguished modelers from around the globe. The Financial Modeler's Corner podcast is brought to you by Financial Modeling Institute. FMI offers the most respected accreditations in financial modeling. I am excited to welcome on the show, David Brown. David, welcome to Financial Modeler's Corner. Hey, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. I kind of have to laugh because in the first four episodes, you're the second David Brown I've had on.
1: Yeah, David and I got a chance to connect probably six months, a year ago, and I actually had a chance to speak at one of his conferences recently. It's a fun running joke in financial modeling now.
0: Yeah, I bet. It was kind of funny when I got the list from in of you know potential people that he thought would be good on the show, and I'm like, David Brown. Look again, David, are these the same people? You know, It took me a minute. I'm sure you get that sometimes. Yep. <laughs> it's a it's a fun coincidence, I guess. All right, we always like to start off with this question for everybody. Tell me about the worst financial model you've seen in your career. So I'm not
1: going to single one out. Um, I guess there's <laughs> a little bit of context. I'm a professor at the University of Arizona and I've been teaching financial modeling for about 10 years now. The worst models are the ones where students have not tried. You know, they, they get going and they just say, no, I can't do anything. And then they come into my office and just show me something blank and there's just no effort put into it yet. Or there's no thought that you've gone to putting into structuring the model or even a first step. Those are the worst ones. I guess the other classification of worst student models are where we spend a bunch of time talking about how important formatting is and making things consistent so your user kind of knows what you're doing where, and they'll put together a really nice legend. Inputs are a certain look, you know, references are another look, et cetera, kind of standard practice. And then they don't use any of that at all in their model. (laughs) So they 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 made the cover page look nice, but they just don't apply it. And so it's really kind of an effort thing that I run into more than, you know, a particularly poorly designed model.
0: And I'm curious, how often would you say you see that challenge of effort? Is that pretty common? Or would you say most people, you feel like they put good effort into it and you have something to work with? Most
1: people put good effort in. And this is something that happens. I mean, it happens once a year. You know, you have one student or one group of students that, you know, they're kind of looking for the handout and they quickly realize that this is going to be a class that they're going to work hard in. And I'd say that most of them respond by then working hard and kind of getting everything put together. And they've learned a lot by the end of the semester. A few drop the class and, you know, I don't see them again. The ones that stick with it kind of know they have to work hard at that point. And I think that's, and that's where they start to take a lot out of it, right? You got to put work in before you start to get anything out.
0: You got the two type. You want to just haven't done anything. And the others that they put the nice cover sheet and then just don't follow it at all. So what's kind of been the takeaway from these bad models that you see? What, what have you taken away from that?
1: So some of it is as a teacher, different people need different amounts of guidance, right? Some people are just able to start with a blank canvas and just start building. And you might not know where you're going with the model. I mean, I'm sure everybody that's listening has had this experience where, you know, this thing has to get restructured seven different times, but you eventually get to where you want it to be. And that's, that's a skill that gets developed with time, though, and some people are just going to see that blank screen and just not know where the heck to start. So a lot of what I've done is now I give students kind of beginner models where there's a lot more structure provided and they start to fill in bits and pieces of it and kind of hold their hand along the way in those initial models. That way, later on, we can get into models where you start building from scratch. And a lot of that's just been, you know, refining my teaching style over time to where I have the ability kind of through, through a couple tools to be able to automate the grading of these spreadsheets. That way they can have this handholding uh, without me having to spend an hour with every individual student because that's just, there's not enough hours in the day.
0: Sure. Yeah. It's just not not practical, even if you wanted to do it. I mean, it's amazing the technology we have now to help with modeling and a lot of the things we do.
1: Yeah, I mean, huge jumps in Excel in the last few years, huge jumps in what I've been doing in class just from finding the right people with the right technology. And it's, it's exciting to see where it's going, too.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I'm excited to see how you know, all these things we're doing with generative AI continues to change and increase productivity, make it easier to do some of the building and be able to focus more on the assumptions and the strategy and the things behind what you're trying to accomplish with the model.
1: I, I'm very curious to see how many of my students are using chat GPT generated formulas this, this fall when I teach again. And if they're able to explain to me how the formula works that they're using.
0: <laughs> I could believe that. Funny enough, I was teaching an Excel training the other day and somebody had asked me a really complex formula and I just don't write it enough to remember how to write it. And I said, just go ask chat GPT. They're like, oh, that's a good idea. And I'm like, if they don't give you the answer, come back and I'll figure it out.
1: Right, and I mean, to me, it's the new Google. I've done a ton of googling in the past, like, how do I do this in Excel? And then I end up at, you know, one of a handful of sites that, you know, have done a lot of work to provide these elegant solutions out there. And now Chat GPT is going to more or less scrape those based on probability combinations, provide some answer that also hopefully works. It's just a shortcut a little bit.
0: Agreed. I mean, I do think in many ways, it's kind of the new Google. I've, I've heard that or it's like a personal assistant or a junior intern. You still got to check the work. You still have to know what you're doing, but it can simplify it. So yeah, it'll be really interesting with students who try to use it to write everything and don't necessarily know what's going on. I'm sure there'll be some where you're like, okay, there's no way the student did that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, can you tell us a little bit about your background? We've asked you about the horrible model. We know you're a professor, but just give us a little bit about your background and how you ended up where you're at today.
1: Yeah, uh, I started out at the University of Kansas, is where I did my undergraduate education. I studied finance and accounting there, and really my introduction to financial modeling was through one of these portfolio classes. Uh, Lots of colleges and universities have them now, where students are actually given real money to run. Um, And we had one of these classes, and you know, each week we would have a different stock to analyze. Uh, The professors did a great job of actually bringing in executives of these companies, and so there would be a lot of pressure on us to you know put together a good valuation of this stock. And so that was just a ton of three Smith statement model building with valuations. And that's really kind of where I cut my teeth in in both financial modeling and Excel. So I I got really into the kind of equity analyst kind of idea. I ended up going from undergrad actually into high frequency trading at a high frequency trading shop is where I learned to program. So I kind of programmed a little bit before that, but I started to learn much more about VBA and how I could essentially build back testers for strategies within VBA. So, you know, dump a bunch of return data into Excel, use VBA to run through a trading strategy, see how it does for a given day on, you know, one stock, but then a hundred different stocks. I kind of self-taught my uh, VBA at that point uh, to be able to build those kind of models. From there, I actually left high-frequency trading, went into student loans for a little while, less FP&A type work, but more, I was actually the head of marketing for a company there and, you know, doing credit scoring, dealing with big credit data sources and then marketing lead generation and managing call center volume and this kind of thing. So it was very different ways to use Excel, but definitely kind of helped me along in that journey. And then the crisis came and, you know, a couple layoffs led to grad school, which is ultimately, you know, kind of where I knew I was going. I always had this dream of being a finance professor. It was just, you know, it, it took, you know, some outside influence and a couple of professors telling me, David, you should really think about going back and getting your Ph.D. And then I went to the University of Colorado Boulder, spent five years there doing my PhD, started teaching entrepreneurial finance. So building three statement models for new companies and valuing them. I got even further into that. Then I did back as an undergrad. So I started teaching that. And then my first job out of school was the University of Arizona, where I'm at now. And this will be my 10th year starting this fall. I've taught financial modeling. This will be 10 years now, along with some courses in uh, critical thinking and international finance. And I've actually developed an Excel lab course. It's kind of an intro to finance, but also paired with Excel that I have developed in the last couple of years.
0: Sounds like a lot of great classes to teach there. And I like the background. I can relate to the 2006, 2008, when you said being in a class portfolio, I had one 2006, 2008 in our MBA program. And I remember when we did our final presentation, the investment committee that oversaw it it was also uh, supposed to be an endowment at some point. They wait wait until it raised a certain amount and then they'd use it for, I think, scholarships or something. And the guys are like. We did our presentation. That's the best presentation we've seen, but we don't want to go through another year like that. The numbers weren't good because it had been brutal with the stock market, you know, 2006 to 2008, but especially being, you know, middle of 2008, everybody, everything had collapsed. So that was an interesting time because our portfolio didn't do well. We got beat pretty bad by the undergrads because they had one stock that they picked right before got acquired at like a crazy number and it covered up everything else they had done. So, you know, they, they took a high-risk approach and hit a home run.
1: Right. This is, this is the difference between diversifying for a long-term portfolio versus playing a tournament where you just have to win. We, we have lots of students do these stock-picking challenges. And the advice is always, you got to max out variance, right? Because there are a thousand students playing this. The only way that you win is by having a huge variance strategy
0: and getting lucky totally makes sense when you're competing in that type of thing. And I remember doing that in simulations, like I'm going to take a risk. If I do what everybody else is doing, I'm going to finish somewhere in the middle. So how did you decide to become a finance professor? You mentioned you kind of always knew, but when did you know? So
1: when I was in high school, I actually did a lot of um, hard science work. You know, I did biochemistry type labs. I did some genetics research and would do science fair projects that were much more hard biology because that's, you know, my mom's background is there. And we had some connections to some research scientists around the Kansas City area where I grew up. So that's where I started. And then by like junior, senior year of high school, I started getting into reading kind of stock valuation books opening my first accounts getting much more interested in the markets and so when i went to ku i studied both biochemistry
0: and finance i'm going to guess there wasn't many students with that combination
1: no there weren't many uh and i actually got i got stuck in this spot where i'd finished all the biochemistry major requirements but i hadn't finished all the gen eds and so i I had this choice in my senior year do i want to take more accounting And get a finance and an accounting degree, or do I want to take more Western civilization and get a finance and a biochem degree? And I realized that, you know, I'm going finance, so the accounting degree is going to be more valuable. Biochem doesn't show up anywhere, but did a lot of, you know, organic chemistry and all the stuff that goes past that. So I I knew I was interested in research and I liked doing that. It just, I I had this mindset of, I want to get out in the world, in the business world, make a name for myself, make a bunch of money kind of idea. And, you know, I, I worked. It was probably six jobs in like four years out of undergrad, and I just kept getting bored pretty quickly with these jobs and uh, Another professor finally explained to me the the joy of research, and that you get to pick the problems you work on that are interesting to you, and you get to examine them how you want on your own schedule and kind of become the expert in the world at that thing. If you're getting bored in my job it's only be, it's your it's your own fault. So I have tons of intellectual challenge. I love how it gets paired with teaching. Um, you know, I, I typically teach one semester a year and I focus on research in the other semester. And that kind of that pattern of going back and forth between the two is is really great for kind of keeping the
0: creativity going and having a variety of the type of work I do. Keeps you from getting too bored, so to speak, like you were at your jobs. I've done this four times now. This is boring. I can relate to that a little bit after like five years of doing variance commentaries every month in FP&A. There's parts I loved. This is not one of them, especially when I managed traveler's check for a couple of years. That was about as consistent as you could be. I could write the commentary without even seeing the month end results. If only you had ChatGPT back then. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I would have pretty much been done in like 30 seconds and just relaxing. (laughs) In today's business world, financial modeling skills are more important than ever. With Financial Modeling Institute's Advanced Financial Modeler Accreditation Program, you can become recognized as an expert in the field by validating your financial modeling skills. Join the Financial Modeling Institute's community of top financial modelers, gain access to extensive learning resources, and attain the prestigious Advanced Financial Modeler Accreditation. Visit www.fminstitute.com backslash podcast and use code podcast to save 15% when you register. Next question here, I know you're actively involved in the Microsoft Excel, the Collegiate Challenge. I think that's through FMWC, if I am right, Financial Modeling World Cup. But can you talk a little bit about what that is for our audience and how you came involved in it? Yeah, so this is
1: actually kind of my baby. I founded this with the FMWC a couple of years ago. The way it came about is you know, back in 2014 when I started teaching at the U of A, I wanted my financial modeling students to have a chance to get involved in kind of real-life modeling. And the opportunity was Model Off.
0: Yeah, I remember that. I remember Model Off. Yeah, exactly. And so the students would do that as extra credit.
1: So I had them doing that. They kind of got this real world experience. I would do it alongside of them whenever it fit my schedule. And in 2016, I actually made the finals. So I got to go to London and kind of meet a lot of the other people involved in this world. And I kept in touch with them. And in 2019, they decided to shut down Model Off. And I kind of pitched the idea of what if we do this with college students instead? Right, we're gonna have fresh people coming through. It can be about learning as much as, as it is about you know having a, a tournament, so to speak. And we were excited about that. We got it going, and then COVID happened. That derailed it. What got it back on track was I, I got tenure, which was great, uh, and it gave it. It gives me a lot of freedom in what I spend my time on. And so I decided I think I could add a lot of value to the world by rebooting this. Uh, and at that point, Andrew and his team at FMWC had built up that whole FMWC season they had the Excel eSports in the works and so we got set up at that point decided hey this looks like something we need to work on together and then last year we had the financial modeling university championships in the spring and then the Microsoft Excel collegiate challenge in the fall we kind of we really partnered to make that all happen and really i, I do want to say just a little bit about why we transitioned uh you know it was the financial modeling university championship which was centered on two things a championship and financial modeling What we realized is, and this is partly with the birth of Excel esports, is that Excel education is much broader than financial modeling, right? Financial modeling is my passion, but we want to make these skills accessible to everyone. Financial modeling is scary to people that aren't financial modelers. Uh, So by making it the Microsoft Excel collegiate challenge, now it's much more accessible. It's not about being the best and being the champion. It's about challenging yourself, learning more and getting better for whatever it is that you want to use it for whatever career you're at.
0: I love that and I think you make a great point, right? Modeling is one small part of Excel. There can be people that are fabulous in Excel that have never built a financial model. They've built models probably. Maybe they've done forms, maybe they've done programming. I mean there's just so many things as I put out on LinkedIn one time I saw it from someone else so I created it cuz I couldn't find the image. It had like 15 different things Excel's used for like 20 and every single one of them said second best. And it was like, you know, procurement, AR, everything, sales commissions, you know, whatever it might be, second best software, and then always lowest price, right? And that's kind of the way to think about Excel is if you want a purpose-built tool, there's plenty of things you can buy. It's going to cost you a lot that make it easier, may do some things better. But if you want flexibility, versatility, ad hoc analysis, spreadsheets are the go-to and Excel's the dominant spreadsheet.
1: And it's such a great teaching platform now. It's a way to get people into data analytics, right? You don't have to like be big into running regressions or even getting to things like machine learning until you've learned the basics of how to get data into something, how to manipulate that data, you know, how to filter a set of data or run summary statistics. Like those are all things that we need to do before you can even start thinking about like, how does chat GPT work? And so I I see it as a, a wonderful thing to teach because it gives so many people entry points into other more
0: advanced things. Agree. You know, I, I teach a lot of Excel training and I try to always teach design principles in most of the courses I do. Here's how to think about designing a model. And then I'll go into Excel tables and I'll say, look, t- understanding tables is really opening up to more data. Because if you understand tables, you can start using Power Query, you can start using Power Pivot, and you're getting more into those data analytics. And it'll open up what you can do. It helps you understand to learn what I call modern Excel, right? Your dynamic arrays, your Excel tables, your Power Query, your Power Pivot—the stuff that most people still don't use—and just amazes me because there's so much power in that that people miss out on.
1: Yeah, it's—you um, know—I I will admit that I am not very well versed on a lot of those new tools. I, I love dynamic arrays, and those get used in the Excel esports world a lot, which is kind of where I've developed my skills. When I need to do database stuff, I go to SQL. And when I need to do um, you know, more complex simulation stuff, I'm going to MATLAB or you're going to Python or R. And so but I, I do love that Excel provides ways into all of these things now. And that like, you know, if I would have learned it that way, it's probably more of a coordinated effort in learning than just kind of piecemealing, oh, I have to go learn Python. All right, let's work on that a little bit now.
0: One of the books, it's called Advancing Into Data Analytics. And it starts with Excel and then shows you the same exercises in Python and R and slowly, kind of gradually brings you up to start learning it. It was written by a guy who's a, he's a Microsoft MVP, but he also teaches a lot of Python and R. And I've always been telling myself, because as I started my own business, I just don't do heavy data analytics with the work I'm doing. So I've just never been able to bring myself to find enough time to learn you know, Python and R. But if I was starting a career over, no question I'd want that in the toolkit in addition to Excel. I look at them as complementary. Some people are like, well, if I know Python, I never need you to use Excel. And I'm like, no, there's plenty of places you can use both.
1: Right. And I mean, the ubiquity of Excel, I, I don't think it's responsible to go away from it for students, right? There are too many places it gets used and too many people don't want to see an Excel file to say you can just do Python. And I mean, if you understand Python, you can figure out Excel.
0: hundred percent agree. Next question here is what advice would you offer to students who learn about the program who are considering participating in those events? I'd
1: say you don't have to win. Get in to learn something. You, you don't have to do everything. There are bits and pieces that you can take away with you. But I think by participating and trying out a couple challenges, you're going to learn something. You're going to get more efficient in Excel. Uh, I think this is one of the most positive NPV investments you can make in the sense that you know spend an hour on a challenge and that's going to save you way more than an hour over the course of the next year even, never mind the, the rest of your career. So learning to get more efficient in Excel now is a very worthwhile investment for I think students in all disciplines, like almost everyone touches Excel at some point in their life. Getting that much better now means you save that much more time later.
0: Yeah. And so I know, I think you probably know him dim early. I had him on the podcast. We releasing that here soon. And, you know, he commented how much he's learned from that and gave the advice that look. If you commit to doing it, you're going to learn. You're going to be better. It just advances your skills. Yeah, and I encourage people to do both the you know, Microsoft Excel World
1: Championships, the World Cup Series, but also the Collegiate Challenge, because the Collegiate Challenge, I mean, you can get to it at mecc.college is the website for it. And you can register as a student, as a high school student, or as other right? So we want this material to be available to anyone. So, you know, if you're not a college student, you can still try everything and participate. You're just not going to be able to get prizes at the end of the day.
0: Sure. You're not going to be a winner or really part of the competition, but you can still learn.
1: Exactly. And and I, I do want to give uh, a little shout out to Dim here and that one of the last times we were talking, he was saying, so I could register at a community college to be a de- degree seeking student and then compete for the prize money, correct? And I said, Technically, yes, but please don't.
0: (laughs) You know, I could totally see just having interviewed him and the way his brain works, I could totally say, see him saying something like that. Yeah, it'd be a nice arbitrage for him. I, I don't see many students beating him in the finals. If they do, they're going to be heavily recognized, I would say, because they're on the path to doing incredible stuff if they're beating him in college. You listed the website they can go to. We'll put that all in the show notes. Anything else you want to say about the competitions or kind of the experience in doing that? Maybe favorite memory or anything you would add from just being involved in that over the last few years?
1: Yeah, I'll give you a favorite memory from last year. So I have a group of students here that I coach at the U of A. I'm helping them develop the skills, kind of both, you know, financial modeling, but also kind of Excel esports. And we had two of these students make the finals last year. So we had... 30 students from around the world that kind of got to come into Tucson and compete in the finals. And they were among those 30. They didn't make it to the final eight, uh, where we take the eight and we take them to the esports arena and we actually broadcast that. So what was fun, though, is watching them watch the live competition and having them argue back and forth over how they would they would approach the problem and which functions they would use. And one of them was like, well, you got to use a lambda here. And it's like, ah, they retained and they, they learned and they're, they, they've got these approaches now to these problems that they didn't have before. And it's so fun to see them engaged in it. And so as, as a professor and you know coach in that respect, it was really fulfilling to see that.
0: I can totally see that. Recently, I got an email from somebody going, we took some of your training and we had a project that was taking us six hours every Monday and it takes me 20 minutes. And you know, I'm just like, okay, it was actually worth something more than they gave me a paycheck. I didn't just waste four hours to get some money. Right, you're adding value to the world. Yeah, so I totally get that. I love when people come back to me and say, you saved me two hours, or I actually use this, or they ask me a question, because I always say, you can always email me. I'll respond to any question you send me. But yeah, 99% of them don't take you up on it. They just want to get their training hours for whatever reason and move on. And so I always love when you see that moment where it's like, okay, I know this is going to stick. It's made a difference.
1: Yeah, yeah, I uh, I love teaching financial modeling because the students see it as valuable and they you know, they recognize that even as
0: they're graduating, like, oh, wow, this is this is something I'm gonna start using right away. I'm sure they do. I wish I had uh, done finance in undergrad. I actually did entrepreneurship, so surprising enough, which was great. I mean, it was a good experience, but I went and worked for the government for four years, went back to grad school, wasn't planning on doing finance, loved my finance professor, and I was supposed to take two classes that semester and only taken one of them. And so when I asked him about it, at first, he's like, um, no, I don't know if we can let you, you know, into the finance specialization. And then I saw how hard I was working in class and that I was competent. And he came back to me later. He's like, just make it up during the summer because my internship was local. So I take an MBA course during the summer and did the finance program and absolutely loved it. And it was you know, one of the better decisions I made. But at first, it wasn't my plan. So it's kind of fun how it how things happen.
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing I would say to any students out there listening, the thing that will get a a professor fired up is just engaging in the material. You don't have to be the best, but if you're trying hard and you're showing interest in it, like we're going to help you out and we're going to work hard to help you learn that material and really understand it. So,
0: And that was exactly it. At the beginning of the semester, it's like, we'll see. When I went and talked to him toward the end of the semester, it's like, you're engaged, you're working hard. I can tell you enjoy this. The answer is yes. Like he would bend over backwards at that point, but he wanted to see that I wasn't just saying that and then no commitment. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure that's really frustrating. I know it is as a teacher and as an employee, when you have somebody that you could tell they're just there and they want to check the box, right? Like the bad models you see. So, you know, next question here. I know uh, a lot of people come out of college, at least in my experience, most people who build models, they learn from their managers, right? Feels like there hasn't historically been much on design. How to really think about building the model? You learn a lot of finance and you teach some modeling classes. So what do you think is being done to really help students get that hand-on experience and to learn some design principles that ensure they don't just build Frankenstein models, as I like to call them, right? The ones that the next person just has to start over because there's no design to it.
1: Not much. A classic problem in college curriculums is that we design a curriculum as a business school, for example, and we decide what classes go where. And then we give them to different professors to teach without really coordinating, you know, what kind of technical skills are going to go alongside that, right? We'll we'll split out, you know, investments from corporate finance and we generally know what goes in those topics. But how are we going to get our students familiar with working with data and excel generally and, you know, beyond that principles of financial modeling? which you know there aren't that many financial modeling classes out there and they're usually not part of a curriculum they're they're an elective perhaps right and so i think we're really at kind of the beginning of a time where financial modeling takes more prominence fmi has been doing a huge amount to like make it more legitimate via the certification channel and i know they have the foundations program which is a very accessible to college students and a great way to get built into a curriculum a little bit more but essentially not enough is being done I'm hoping that just the data analytics push that we're seeing across college campuses will lead to more financial modeling emphasis as well and how to structure, you know, data generally, but also specifically for financial modeling. So this is an area that really I am passionate about and hope through my own curriculums that I've been building that I can kind of push things more that direction. We have a gigantic barge of a college system, and it takes a very long time to move it anywhere.
0: I mean, it's very bureaucratic, right? Just the size of it. You have to be fairly bureaucratic to run something that big. It's really hard to stay lean and entrepreneurial at that size of scale.
1: The encouraging part is that I'm starting to hear more and more schools being focused on bringing Excel skills in earlier and more financial modeling. Over the last couple of years, that has definitely accelerated, which is also a great thing to see.
0: 100% agree. What would you like to see kind of change? I mean, if you had control and you could change it, how would... You like to see that incorporated to help students be more prepared to build those first models when they get into work. So if I were to build a program from scratch, I would almost put a one credit lab with
1: each course the students take. You know, the intro to finance could have intro Excel with it and your investments class. Maybe we're going to use some Python there to get you familiar with that. Maybe some R. And then we're going to get some advanced Excel in and we're going to layer on these technical skills and kind of pair them alongside the core theoretical material that we, we still want to teach and we still think is very important. But being able to layer on the technical skills so people can graduate and really be ready to jump into their job, I think would be a great way to design it. But, you know, there are only so many credits they can take and how do you fit that all in. So that would be my way to tear it down and rebuild it. But, you know, I think building the content is kind of the first step, right? If the content is there, now we can start to figure out ways to get into the classes. And maybe instead of being a one credit add-on, we start to incorporate some of these assignments that bring in more of these technical aspects. That way the students can be more prepared when they're graduating.
0: I really like how you mentioned the lab. I mean, in an ideal world, I think that'd be great, right? You see that in some of your science and other, where you have lab courses and having a lab for each of those classes, like you said, learn a little bit of Excel, maybe a little bit of Python. Maybe there's some in there where some of it's related to PowerPoint presentations, whatever it might be, but giving you a little more technical. And yeah, you can do some assignments, you get a little bit of that, but I I hear what you're saying. And that makes a lot of sense to me, what you mentioned there. I think FMI, like you mentioned, is another great way, right? What they're bringing. Well, I think
1: the other nice thing about this, and I don't have any you know, research studies to back this up, but I think when you're learning a theory and then you go put it into practice via a lab, you're going to understand that theory better at the end of the day. And so I think there's really a complementarity there, the lab helping to reinforce the theoretic material while also building those technical skills.
0: I would agree with that. So one other question I want to ask here, going a little bit back to competition, but kind of a mix. What do you see as the main difference when someone's building a model for competition versus the real world?
1: I think the biggest thing is understandability, right? When, when I'm building something in competition, I'm worried about the fastest solution I can get to. And, and often that means building very complicated formulas in maybe one cell with dynamic spilled arrays and lambdas and lets that are going to let me do that in a concise framework and then make it so I can drag it down over multiple questions in a level. Right. So that's that's a formula you would never want to present to a client or a professor or have anybody try to audit. Whereas, you know, you're building a model for someone else to ever look at. You need to think about, you know, breaking out the steps as much as possible to make it very clear what the model is doing. You know, clearly labeling and organizing things, kind of using best practices in that case, where all of that is out the window when you're competing. I think the, the other big difference is that when you're competing, you kind of got to figure out which way you're gonna go pretty quickly. You might see that there's two or three different ways to solve something and you don't have time to think through the optimal way. And so you kind of got to go with your gut and say, all right, I'm going to go with option A and we're going to see where it takes me. And I know that I'm already five minutes into it. And so there's no chance I'm going to win if I go to option B at this point. Whereas, you know, maybe you take option X if you're building a model for a client and it took you a while to get there, but that's okay. You had the time. It wasn't time pressured.
0: Yeah, you go talk to Tom or Bill, get their opinion, talk to Emily, and, oh, yeah, this makes sense. We'll go with option Z versus, like you said, in a competition, well, I started with the VBA solution, and I don't like it. I'm hosed if I can't finish it, so to speak. You really don't have option B or C. You can't be like, oh, well, now I'll try this. Oh, maybe I want dynamic arrays. Once you've committed, you're pretty much down that rabbit hole.
1: Right. And I I would say you can even go out to option XFD just to throw an Excel joke in there.
0: I like that. I, I did catch that one. So now how many columns is that? What is that? 25,000? I, I do not know that one. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> so ne- next question I have here, I just want to ask you a little bit about the research you do. You mentioned you spend one semester teaching, one semester research. I know you've written a number of different articles, some about IPO and, and different things. So maybe just talk a little bit about what you specialize and maybe share something you've learned through your research that you're really proud of.
1: Yeah, I, I work in a lot of areas, like you mentioned, IPOs um more recently i'm focused more on investment products you know things I've, I've done a lot of work on etfs uh but right now i'm focused on target date funds or tdfs and they're used basically for retirement savings uh, they're the most popular and quickest growing area of investment in the world right now you know most 20 30 somethings that are starting their first jobs are getting defaulted into these and just as a quick bit of background you know if you're if you're starting right now you might say that i'm going to retire in 2060 and so you get a 2060 target dated fund And that fund is then going to do some dynamic asset allocation for you and kind of handle everything for you in saving for retirement, right? It's going to do the stock versus bond mix. It's going to change it as you get closer to retirement. What we don't understand very well yet is how we should benchmark these things, how we should analyze, are they doing a good job or not? And so that's a lot of what my work is right now is trying to come up with a good way to benchmark them and evaluate the activities they're taking on investors' behalf. Like, are they doing a good job for investors or not? And kind of the sad but interesting thing that I've found so far is they generally are underperforming what we, we would hope for.
0: I figured, I was afraid you were just going to say that. I'm like, let me guess, they're underperforming. Very basically,
1: what we do is we benchmark a portfolio, a TDF portfolio to a similar portfolio, but made from ETFs that are very low cost. And what we see is that the difference between those two portfolios is about 1% per year on average. Uh, And that's not all TDFs. There are lots of good TDF providers out there, particularly if you get some of the index TDF products, and Vanguard is almost always a good bet, but there's still a lot of people out there that are charging way too much. And so what we hope our research does is make that more accessible so people can realize, well, this target date fund is 1% too expensive Let's go somewhere else. It's just, it's, there's not much transparency. It's very hard to understand the cost that you are paying. And that's where academic research can come in and kind of help hopefully guide better investment decisions going
0: forward. Well, you'll definitely let, have to let us know when you have some of that published. Would love to you know, share some of that. Sounds really interesting. And I don't think people realize, you hear 1%, you're like, oh, that's not a big amount. But you think 1% over 45 years of your career every year, it's a huge number when you add that all up. It's
1: massive. You can spend 50%
0: more per year based on those fees. Yeah. And people just don't realize it because they think, oh, 1%. It's no big deal. I mean, I've been guilty of that a few times. I run the math and I'm like, ooh, that was a really bad decision. Compounding. its one of the most powerful forces in the universe, right? Yep. It either works for you or against you, but it always works. <laughs> Very true. Last question we mo- before we move into our rapid fire question section. So you teach a critical thinking and finance course. Can you talk to why critical thinking is so important in finance and financial modeling?
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple levels of it. One is really stopping before you do any modeling and thinking about what the most important business question is, right? Like, why are we modeling? This actually translates to research very well, because I've built a lot of models in my research, uh, theoretic models, and they're to help us better understand the world. And so you got to think about, how am I going to set that up? What are the important drivers coming in and what are the important outputs coming out? And this is something any financial modeler will do when they're working with a client. They have to define like what are the outputs that you're looking for to make a decision, and then we can kind of work back towards to what do we need to know, and then you know how are all the calculations going to happen. But really, we got to define what it is we want to know at the end of the day, and how are we going to make a better decision. So I think there's a lot of critical thinking in that respect. The other thing that I think is really important to think about with financial modeling is when the model can teach us something about. Um, how the world works, but also when it looks funny and it is wrong. For example, if you see a model that tells you one plus one equals three, some of my students are going to take that and say, huh, didn't know that. One plus one is three. Others are then going to dig in and say, oh, okay, so something's wrong. Let's figure out where it is. And so that critical thinking aspect is, is recognizing when your intuition goes against the model then diving in and figuring out, well, is the model wrong or is your intuition wrong? Right. Cause that's a, a super valuable thing to learn too. If you've built the model right and you're getting an answer you don't expect, maybe there's something new about the world that you have to learn. Either of those are going to be a great way to kind of use critical thinking and have it help our thinking through modeling.
0: I love what you said there, the example. Cause I just think of some people I've worked with where they don't have that ability to do a sniff test, right? The model told me this is the answer. So it must be right. Well, you're expecting a number in the millions and you got a number in the billions. Probably something going on here, but they just don't. Have, they don't think that way. I've run into a few people that I work with, and I'm like, okay, they work really hard, but until they can figure that out, they need to be doing something different, or we need to find a way to get them there because you have to have that ability, that intuition, if you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, sense check to just be able to critically think about something and say, does it make sense? Like one plus one equals three. Although, funny story on that, I had a roommate that had all these funny shirts, and he said, one plus one equals three for larger values of one. <laughs> Math people would get it, but everybody else would look at them like, what are you talking about? Well, I I remember uh, I did a problem in grad school where we
1: had one plus one equals three, or we had that one equaled zero at the end of the proof. And we we scoured this proof and we we were convinced it was right. And we went to the professor and he was like, oh yeah, sorry, I gave you something a little bit wrong at the beginning. (laughs) And so we got that fixed and then the proof carried through and it was all okay. But this, again, you got to challenge the assumptions, challenge the model, eventually figure out what's wrong.
0: Yeah, I, I can relate to that. I still, I'll tell one more and then we'll go to rapid fire. But I remember I was in grad school and we had a finance assignment, some accounting thing. I have to admit, I was dominating the conversation saying this could be the only thing that's right, but it just didn't make sense. I remember we asked the professor about it. He goes, you know, if that's if that's what you're thinking, I'm going to guess someone's dominating the conversation. But I had everybody convinced. They all went home and wrote the answer that way. I went home and thought about it later. And late that night, I'm like, this can't be right. It has to be the other way. So I changed mine. I think I got an A and everybody else got like a C on the assignment. And they all hated me <laughs> because, you know, because <laughs> I finally just come to the conclusion, this can't, the sense, I'm like, this just can't, there's no logical way this could work. And I completely flipped my answer. And I remember a few of them were not too happy with me on that one.
1: Well, maybe it wasn't the days when you can send a quick teams message or whatever else. So.
0: Yeah, it wasn't quite as easy then. So rapid fire section, we have about seven of these and here's how it works. You get, No more than 10 seconds to answer each. It depends is not allowed. So it's a yes or no. At the end, you can pick one to elaborate on. And so these are going to be common questions. I know you've seen them. So I'm guessing you have your thoughts on them. Circular references or no circular references in models? No circular references unless I absolutely have to. That's the usual. VBA or no VBA? VBA. Excel dynamic arrays, yes or no? Always
1: and as many as I can.
0: (laughs) External workbook links, yes or no? Never. Named ranges versus no named ranges. Yes, and I'd like to use them more. Do you follow a formal standard? Should people using a formal standard for building models like SMART or some of the others out there? Yes or no? I don't, but I probably should. Fair enough. And then what is your lookup function of choice? Do you like VLOOKUP, index match, XLOOKUP, or choose? XLOOKUP. All right. And when I ask one person that, he goes, you realize there's a lot more than four options. And I'm like, yes, I realize that. So which one would you like to
1: elaborate on? Uh, The VBA, because I went back and forth on that one a lot. My initial thoughts were no VBA. You've got lambdas today. Lambdas are more accessible to students. You know, you don't have to get the editor out and deal with teaching all that. And so, you know, if we can accomplish most things in lambdas anyway, let's just avoid the VBA altogether. VBA is also temperamental. Uh, One thing I do is I teach a lot of students that use Macs, right? Probably two-thirds of college students use Macs. When we get to the part of my course where I teach VBA, it breaks a bunch. It's just finicky. I tell those students, go to the computer lab when you're having issues. But on the flip side, there's so much you can do with VBA. It's the way I teach students programming, right? It, it allows Excel to be this entry point to programming, which I think is wonderful. There's also a ton of cool stuff you can do with micro-automations. Eric Ohm is doing some of this stuff. Being able to use these things and use those tools, I think it's you're, you're putting handcuffs on if you're not going to use any VBA. So I think it's still worth having, but there are definitely arguments to be made to move away from it.
0: So I'm curious, what about, you know, Power Query, Office Scripts, some of the other things they've done? Do you think you can accomplish just about everything without VBA with? Cuz it feels like Microsoft's done a lot to try to limit the use of VBA given the fact it doesn't work online, cloud, it's a temperamental language, it's 40 years old, you know, those challenges that you mentioned. So what's your take on that?
1: So, my t- so I haven't dug into it yet, but Office scripts are definitely on my list because I think a lot of where Excel is going is going to be on the cloud. And so having students able to start programming there with Office scripts and doing the same thing rather than doing it in VBA, I think will be an important piece. Hopefully, they'll have some recording macro type options where you can generate some Office Script. I mean, maybe they do already, and I just don't know about it.
0: I've heard they just released some recently. I haven't tested it at all. I haven't used Office Scripts, but I heard from someone they've created something kind of like the macro recorder. Yeah, and I think once
1: that's there, because that's some of the beauty of teaching programming in Excel is that you can record a macro and generate those lines of code, and the students can see that instantly. So I think once that capability is there, it'll be... I think in a f- five years, probably I'm moving to Office Script rather than VBA at that point. But, you know, it's going to take a long time to pull VBA out of all of the offices in the world and to make that transition. So, I mean, this is the other thing I teach my students is like, I like X lookup, but you got to know index match and VLOOKUP because a lot of your employers aren't going to be on Office 365 and you're not going to have all these cool new dynamic array things and you got to be able to do it kind of old school.
0: I'm with you. I teach the same thing. I you know, I teach XLOOKUP a lot, but reminding people, one, someone might not be on it, two, they may have no idea how it works, and you may need to adjust to the audience you have. So it's important to know all the different options. For me, it's do what works. Like sometimes I feel like people look at VLOOKUP index match as a battle over what religion's right. Yeah, like and now XLOOKUP. And I'm always like use what works, but what's more important is you understand the logic behind them. And you know when you could use one over another and what the disadvantages and advantages are so you don't end up with errors. All right. So we're coming up on the end of time here. I know we've run a little bit over, but just last question here before we uh, give you an opportunity to just tell our audience how they can connect with you. So if there's one thing you've learned over your career about financial modeling that you could share with our audience, what would that be? What's maybe kind of one thing that's really helped you be a better modeler?
1: I'm going to talk about modeling generally because there's financial modeling. A lot of modeling I do is mathematical modeling. And what's great about modeling is that it provides discipline and structure to your thought, right? A lot of times you'll have thoughts moving around in your head and you got to get them down at some point or teaching entrepreneurial finance, for example, you have a business plan and you can talk all day about how great this is going to be, but you got to start putting it into numbers and ultimately get to evaluation of the business. And that's where the financial modeling is going to provide that discipline. You really have to be thoughtful about what assumptions you're putting in, how this all ties together. But then it also informs your thinking. You know, you start building the model as an entrepreneur and you're like, oh, the employment line, when am I going to hire employees? How many? What are their salaries going to be? What benefits do I have to pay? Oh, no, do I need an HR department? Like you start getting into really putting a structure on problems. In a sense, it almost serves a project management role, right? And that you're managing all the thoughts that you have going into this model. I've really found that is a very beneficial way to think about modeling and that by starting modeling early, it's going to save me time down the road by disciplining my thought and putting structure on what I'm doing.
0: And I like how you use the word structure, because for me, the discipline, the structure, the design, you get those right. And almost always, you're going to have a valuable model, right? You get those wrong. And sure, you may have valuable in that you get the answer right per se. I don't know if there's a right answer with the model, but you get a valuable answer, but it's going to be really hard for people to use it down the line. Last question. If our audience wants to learn more about you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? How could they reach you?
1: So the easiest is probably just my email, dcbrown at arizona.edu. You can find me on LinkedIn, but like we talked about earlier, there are a lot of David Browns out there. Uh, And then the third route would be, I have a YouTube channel where I post most of my videos I've built for teaching, and that's under
0: Doc Brown Excels. Right, great. Thanks again for carving out some time for us, David. Really enjoyed uh, chatting with you and learning a little bit more about what you're doing and excited to see how you continue to move the, you know, the finance and financial modeling forward, especially for college students.
1: Thanks so much, Paul. This was
0: great fun to chat. Thanks for joining us for that interview with David Brown. That is the David Brown of U of A, not the David Brown from Nigeria. One thing I really enjoyed that he talked about that I just want to cover for a minute is I love how he explained how he would teach the college program for finance if he could to really focus on people getting those technical skills, not just the theoretical, by adding one credit to each course. I thought that was a great example of how you know education needs to evolve, as I think we've all been frustrated, I know I have, with education being so theoretical and not practical enough. So that's the one thing that really jumped out to me from that interview. There were a lot of things I enjoyed from it. But just as we wrap up here, I would like to remind each of you that if you're a CPA, CMA, you can earn CPE credit for this podcast by going to earmarkcpe.com, downloading the app and answering a few questions. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and subscribe and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. We'd really appreciate it if you could give us a review. Thanks again for joining us for this episode, because we could not do it without you, the audience. Financial Modeler's Corner was brought to you by Financial Modeling Institute. Visit FMI at www.fminstitute.com backslash podcasts and use code podcast to save 15% when you enroll in one of their accreditations today.